0: Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. This morning, we have the pleasure of talking to John Zippert. He has been on with us before, and he retired in December of 2018 from the Federation of Southern Co-ops, but now he is the interim coordinator for the Alabama State Association of Cooperatives at the Federation of Southern Co-ops. Good morning, John.
1: Good morning.
0: Good morning. How are you this morning?
1: Pretty good. Looking forward to the day.
0: Okay. What got you back into working after you retired? Although uh, from talking to you since 2018, it doesn't look like you had much time to relax. But what got you back uh, into my, the-
1: my, my My wife, Carol, says that I failed retirement. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and although, although I retired from the Federation December of 2018, not long after that, I agreed to work on some special projects that the Federation was doing. I also agreed to help Cornelius Blanding, the executive director, with fundraising. And recently, we had a longtime member of our staff, Pan Mazima, who took another job with another organization, and she was the coordinator of the Alabama State Association of Cooperatives, which is the Alabama affiliate of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. So I told Cornelius that I would volunteer for three to six months as the interim coordinator of the state association to allow him to identify, recruit and we would both train a new person for this position because the Federation works in most of the states of the South, and in those states where we have a number of cooperatives, we have a state association of cooperatives. In Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, we have had long-standing. State associations in some of the other states, Texas, North Carolina, Arkansas, we're organizing, reorganizing state associations now.
0: So, so you did not mention Louisiana. Do you have a state association? Yeah, there? we, we,
1: we do have a, a, a state association. That was a,
0: okay. I skipped
1: over it. We do. We do now have a state association that has been formed in Louisiana and that is working with three or four cooperatives there and hoping to expand. And as you know, I worked in Louisiana from 65 to 71. I started with the Congress of Racial Equality working on civil rights in 65, registering people to vote. And the people who were most interested in working with me as a kind of civil rights organizer, agitator, convener, whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I got called all kinds of things. The people who were most interested were black landowners or black sharecroppers who were working on land owned by black people. So they had some degree of independence to be able to make decisions about their own economic destiny. And those are the people that I helped to organize in St. Landry Parish into the Grand Marie Vegetable Producers Cooperative, which marketed sweet potatoes, okra and cabbage and some other vegetables and we organized that cooperative in 66 and it was one of the 22 cooperatives that met in Atlanta in the spring of 67 to organize the Federation of Southern Cooperatives so I've been involved in this thing for a lifetime when I went to Louisiana in June of
0: '65, I was 19 years old. Okay, June of '65, 19 years old. And how did you get to Louisiana? What caused you to well, come to Louisiana?
1: Well, I volunteer. I tried to volunteer in '64 for the Mississippi Freedom Summer. And my parents said, no, you're not old enough and we, we, we won't allow you to go to that in 64. And then I was involved in a lot of additional activities with uh, the student government at the city college of New York where I got my education. Anyway, I got involved with the local core chapter on, at city college and there was this opportunity to come for the summer of 65 as a volunteer with CORE. And I usually say at this point, it's been a long summer. (laughs) 1965
0: to 2022.
1: I I I never went back to New York City. I continued to work on civil rights and economic justice and cooperative development since 1965 which really is a a lifetime of work Uh, in 71 I moved to this site in Sumter County, Alabama near Epps, Alabama where the federation together with a local organization the Panola Land Buying Association bought 1100 acres of land that it's another story of a struggle, a five-year struggle to be able to buy the land. But I mean, '70 we we won through a federal court action the right to buy the land. Wow! And we bought the land and, and moved families that worked for the Federation from Louisiana, Atlanta, Mississippi, and other places to that land in Sumter County and and developed the Federation's Rural Training and Research Center there and we still own together the federation together with the Panola land buyer still owns that 1164 acres of land and it's paid for
0: so, so John i am back in 1964 you are a young white male going to school at City College, and you want to come to the South as a freedom rider, I assume. And your parents say no, you're too young. In '65, though, you're 19, and you decide to go. Do I have it right? How did how did you yeah. get the bug? How did you get the sort of the view of going to the South to help people vote, register?
1: Well, it was the 60s. I think the whole civil rights movement influenced the whole society in in, in, in the 60s. And I, at City College, we were involved in a fight. When I went there in 62, tuition was free. And as we were there, the governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, he proposed that to have a two hundred fifty dollar a semester tuition, and we we fought that. I sat on the steps of his office in Rockefeller Center, and and we fought it. We were we we staved it off for a while. So I, I got involved in sort of grassroots community organizing, you know civil disobedience, involvement in movement beyond civil rights. Uh, I was in the student government. Uh, Dr. King sent us a, a telegram in March of 65 asking us to come to Selma to participate in the not in Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday had already happened when people were beaten mm-hmm. on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, John Lewis, and Jose Williams, and others. Uh, the student government sponsored several of us to go. I was part of marching out of Selma on that Sunday. They took only 300 people could actually march the whole distance. I I stayed back in Selma. Then I came to Montgomery on the back of a truck Mm -hmm. and participated in the last day of the march. At that point, a whole busload of students from the City College of New York had come to Selma. I rode the bus back with them. I, I was involved in the movement in some way or other, and in the collateral activities of the movement. So, again, I thought it was important to volunteer to participate for the summer of 65. Uh, I went to the training uh, in a place called Waveland, Mississippi. The, the Gulf Side Assembly was owned by the CME Part of the Methodist, the black Methodist church at the time. Mm -hmm. They're all more or less together. Anyway, the place where we went to the training in Waveland, Mississippi, was where Katrina made landfall. (laughs) And it's not, the place is not there anymore. At Waveland, Mississippi, there were about 100 people there. And some were selected to go to Florida. The rest of us picked out of a a paper bag, whether we got an S or an L. S for South Carolina, L for Louisiana. I picked an L. They took the people with the L's, and there were three times as many people going to Louisiana. They took us in a room, and they assigned us somewhat arbitrarily to where we were going. I wound up going to St. Landry Parish, Louisiana, Appaloosa is the county seat with three other uh, volunteers, including one of whom who
0: had a car, and we started working. So let me, let's stop right there because we're going to take our first break. So you're in the St. Landry Parish, and Queen Sugar... The series, the TV series on OM, they're in St. Landry Parish. So it may be talking about the same parish, Landry Parish, but we'll come back and talk more about that, Queen Sugar, after the break.
1: 1450
0: WOL, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and my guest today is John Zippard. We were just talking about his young life uh, in New York City, and he left in 1965 on the bus on the Freedom Riders. He was a member of the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, as we knew it back then. Um, John, when you were doing all of this, I graduated from high school in 1965. I was 17 years old. My mother would not even let me. I had a full scholarship to Clark in Atlanta. She would not let me go there because of all of the um, unrest and upset. And she, I was born in New York, and she was from New York. Um, and her and my mom, her and my father met in, in World War Two. They were both in, in the Army. Um, and she just would not let me go. So I ended up going to Kentucky State. I don't know. I I would probably have been right there with you, and she may have saved my life or something because I think she knew I would have been in it, but I I was not. And so I'm I'm just really wanting to hear your story of what happened when we took the break. You you picked an L out, and they and that said for Louisiana as opposed to South Carolina, and now they're taking you to the St. Landry Parish. Uh, what was it like then? And you are developing the community you're getting people together you're getting them to vote and get them to organize um what was that like for you and what kind of discrimination did you see these black farmers landowners and sharecroppers what did they face
1: well just to put things in context if you look at a map st landry parish is kind of dead center of louisiana and in terms of land area, it's one of the largest parishes in land area, and it also had, in the 1960 census, the largest number of black farmers and sharecroppers in Louisiana. You know, I always tell people then that I I uh, I, I, I took uh, rural studies at the City College of New York, which of course. They didn't have <laughs> uh, but anyway i mean i was mo- I was motivated to help the people there to implement the nineteen sixty four Civil Rights Act, which meant you could go to any restaurant, you could go to any hotel, you could go anywhere that was public and open it up for black people and and we did some of that. Mm -hmm. Based on what people wanted to do, including going to restaurants and having people pour ketchup on our head and all of this stuff. This is after the law had passed. Secondly, the 1965 Voting Rights Act had passed. So in St. Landry Parish and the organization that we were working with, was the St. Landry Parish NAACP. So NAACP, Corps, SNCC, SCO, everybody worked together in the 60s at the ground level. People need to understand that. So we became the troops. We we became the grassroots folks working with the NAACP to carry out their mission. And in addition to that, the two of us, the guy who had the car and me, we started visiting uh farmers outside of Opelousas. And most of them were raising some cotton, which was a price-supported, at that time, kind of government-controlled crop. And then they had sweet potatoes and other vegetables as a cash crop. And their complaint was that they were not getting a fair price for their sweet potatoes. Mm. And you know, through a really six months to a year educational process every Friday night in a in a honky tonk, we brought together about twenty leaders, farm leaders from different communities In St. Landry Parish and together we learned what a cooperative was because although I took Economics 101
0: (laughs) They didn't teach co-ops. In the
1: City College of New York they did not talk about co-ops very much and I sought assistance and sought help from the government and other places to learn about cooperatives and then I conducted In kind of the classic cooperative organizing way, uh, class, a study group with people. One possible way for us to get a better price for sweet potatoes is to form our own cooperative marketing organization. And we did that and we did help people to get a better price or their sweet potatoes and other vegetables through that. Now, in the course of this, uh, all farmers in America are, in some sense, registered with USDA, with the Department of Agriculture. So they relate to the Department of Agriculture. And in particular, these farmers had, they all had a small cotton allotment So they were dealing with something called the Agricultural Stabilization and Conservation Service, ASCS, which no longer exists. Its functions have been uh, transferred into other agencies. But one of the interesting things about this is there was a committee in each county in America, each parish in Louisiana that was an elected committee of people to administer and give suggestions on the USDA process. And so we started in 66, we decided we would participate in this ASCS election because to me, you know, it had parallels to registering to vote and getting involved in politics. So we nominated some people. That it was a two-step process. There was a community committee, like 10 or so of those in St. Landry Parish. Then the community committees elected the parish committee. So we had black people who agreed to run and... Nobody had ever run for this before. And we got involved in this, and we found out along the way that the white voters were getting a ballot for the head of the household and the spouse of the head of the household. But black families were just getting one one ballot for the head of the household. Like This is part of the whole... You know, before we get into who gets a loan and who gets refinanced, this was supposedly the democratic way. that The USDA had these committees, and in, in, they still have committees in every county and parish. So we went in to confront the foray. Who John,
0: the- John, before you go further, I just make sure I got this. If If you're a white family, you got two ballots
1: yes however Zim you however you call
0: yeah. it, you got two ballots if you're a black family, you get one ballot,
1: yes, so we went in, okay, and that was somehow in somehow related to the ownership of property, the joint ownership of property in Louisiana, and all of that, but all those laws apply to black people and white people, so we go in to complain about this. I went with a group of five or six black farmers, all of whom were nominated to run. And they confront Mr. Foray, uh, why aren't we getting ballots? And I love to tell this story because it's, it's a wonderful story about southwest Louisiana. Mr. Foray breaks out in Creole French and talks to the farmers in explains all of this in creole french to them which i had to have people translate for me so i could help figure out what was going on i i, I tell that this, this this is louisiana this is southwest louisiana here he goes and in, into a cultural shift yep on me the poor community organizer from new york city who didn't understand Creole French. Anyway, the gist of it was that they said they were going to send ballots to the wives of the black farmers, but they really didn't. Okay. And we didn't win that election. And that was my sort of first exposure to the whole we, question.
0: And we're going to come back after this next break and we're going to talk about the other discriminations that you saw. White Farmers, two ballots, Black Farmers, one. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial.
1: 1450
0: WOL, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and John Zippert is our guest today. Uh, John left New York in 1965 as a member of CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. As a freedom rider, he ended up in Louisiana, and the St. Landry Parish. He we were talking right before the break of and organizing the black farmers. He found how the white farmers were given two ballots to vote for the uh, ASCS, which is a part of the Department of Agriculture, and the ASCS. Uh, they elected the folks that decided who got the loans? Who got the money? They were the ones sifting through them. So if this group was all whites, then it was much easier for them to discriminate, I would think, John. And they did not want blacks on, so that blacks had one half the power, the voting power, as the whites did. So, John, what other discriminatory practice did, did you witness early on in Louisiana, in St. Landry Parish?
1: Hey, well, I, I want to put part of this in context again okay? and say coming out of slavery black people by 1920 in america had accumulated and bought through their own efforts 15 million acres of land in the south basically in the south and for a variety of reasons and this program is not long enough uh, by 1960, the land ownership of black people was down to 6 million acres. And today, it's somewhere around 3, 3.5 million. And the number of people involved in farming as black farmers has similarly decreased from a million people engaged in agriculture, black people in some way or other in 1920 we're down now to, um, and the, it's, the numbers are difficult to pin down, but we're, we're under a hundred thousand black farmers, probably under 50,000 black farmers at this point. Now, to me, the biggest discrimination that I experienced from the beginning and still exists today is that most black farmers are not aware of what programs in terms of credit loans in terms of conservation which the the government provides what's called a cost share on various conservation practices like building a pond or fencing
0: your land or... John, John, I'm sorry. Can I stop you a minute? I'm I'm still back on those numbers you gave me. I want to come back to this, but can you... Okay. What I got was today there's about 3 million acres of land compared to 15 million in, what did you say, 1920 or
1: 1930?
0: 1920. 1920, we had 15 million acres, and now today we have three. That's like 20% of what we had in 1920. Three, yes. 15, one-fifth. But in people, we had about a million people in 1920, black folks, on some form of farming, and today is about 100,000. That's 10%. So you got 10% of the people in agriculture, black people in agriculture farming, as you did in 1920, and those people own 20% of the land that was owned in 1920. That's the huge drop that you're talking about in terms of land ownership.
1: And it continues, and uh, and I would just say to people who are listening to you who have some remaining ownership in land in the South, they need to get together with their family, they need to do some things to protect that land. But part of the reason that this land is lost is that black farmers have not had access to the credit programs, to the conservation programs, to the marketing programs, to the education and training programs of USDA in the same way as white farmers. So the biggest problem to me is that most black farmers who are operating on a small scale, less than 100 acres, and I understand the Queen Sugar people, and there, there are people who have more than a hundred acres. But the, the vast majority of people that the Federation of Southern Cooperatives deals with have less than a hundred acres at this point. The
0: Ralph rough angel on Queen Sugar, his father left him eight hundred acres. Yes. Yeah, which he lost.
1: So there are there are about ten percent of those black people that own land today that own more than a hundred acres. Most own less. That's another reality. And the the programs of USDA were oriented to uh bigger farmers in the in the Midwest, people in Iowa, people in Minnesota people in Missouri, and to large white farmers who raise cotton, soybeans, peanuts, and things like that in the South. So the biggest problem of discrimination is that the people didn't know about the programs, and the programs basically were not tailored To the needs of the people that I was working with. That's the biggest problem. The second problem is that when you went into those local offices, and let's understand, you got the Secretary of Agriculture in Washington, you got a state director of what's now called the Farm Service Agency which is the lone agency of USDA in every state. But really in every county, and now it's multi-counties, there is an office where there is a staff of two or three people who are administrating these programs.
0: So in Queen Sugar, there was uh, two people in this in this office, one black, one white. The white man took all of the black farmers... And it was showing in Queen Sugar in season seven how he was discriminating against and taking the land of the black farmers. Okay. Uh, and I
1: think that that I think fact and fiction are pretty close together there. That in these offices depending on there were very few people in first of all from the sixties until 2000, there weren't many black people in those positions. There were some. There are more today. But the, the problem is that when people went in the office, they were actively discouraged. They were told there was no money. We're waiting for an appropriation. We don't know what, how much money we'll have. We don't think we'll have money for you. So they were very discouraged. those people who then those people who persisted, they were then handed a twenty page twenty three page application to fill out, which requires you to have basically it asks you about all your assets and then it asks you for your farm business plan. And your farm business plan has to cash flow, which means it has to generate enough money for you to live and to pay back the loan. You have to submit this to USDA. And the truth of the matter is that white farmers are assisted to fill out these papers in some cases, the agents fill out the paperwork for the white farmers. They, they by and large, do not do this for black farmers. And at this point, they don't do much of it for anybody. You have to bring in an application. And the, the Federation's policy on this now, and certainly in the Alabama, we don't allow anybody to go to these offices by themselves, we send somebody with them who's knowledgeable about the program so they can run interference, they can block, they can tackle all of the crazy explanation that people give why there's no money. And if you got an application in, you finally get your application in, For black people, they would delay the application until when they provided the money, it was too late in the season to really help the people plant what they wanted to plant to get the maximum financial benefit. And then those people they gave the money to, they highly supervised them. So if you got money for cattle or if you got money for hogs or if you've got money for other things, every time you sold a cow you had to bring the money to the USDA office first and they would apply it either apply it on your loan or apply a part of it on your loan and give you the rest for living expenses. All of this based on your application and your plan. So, if if the people in the office were unsympathetic, which most of them were, even if you got a loan, they then use that loan to try to put you in a position of foreclosure or losing the land or losing the farm or losing part of the farm and those kind of things. and. For instance, one of the requirements was that you had to collateralize your loan at 150% of the value. So if you borrowed $10,000, you had to put up $15,000 of collateral. If you borrowed 100000 you had to put up 150000 of collateral. And these, this, this was a government system, and these local folks, mostly white folks, were the bankers, quote unquote, bankers of last resort to help people. But because of racism and because of people's attitudes, they didn't do a very good job.
0: Well, they did a very good job. Of taking the land, yeah. of making sure that the person could not pay back the loan. Okay, so I got you've got this committee, ASCS, that were elected. So you got discrimination there two white ballots, one black ballot, the families. Then you get a p- group of people in there that helps to make the decision who gets the loan. Now you have working for HUD, these county or parish groups with a couple people in mostly white in the, in that time frame and then they give them first they would discourage them then they would give them a 23 page application it was interesting you knew the exact number of pages and they had to fill it out with a plan it had the cash flow I understand that through business school but if you didn't go to business school or if you haven't done this this is very very difficult to do okay and then you Make it so that if you get a loan, you don't get it until late, so you can't really utilize the loan. And then if you get the loan, they got all of these stipulations in it of how you have to pay it back or even, you didn't mention this, but um, how, how they give you the money. They may partial it out to you so you can't get the full benefit of the money. You get it late, get a portion of it, and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. It makes it very, very difficult, and it leads you to failure. All of it leads you to failure. Wow. Government supposedly helping, but it's just doing the opposite. We have one more segment, John. We'll come back and talk, uh, continue this conversation of what you witnessed in discrimination in Louisiana and then later on in Alabama. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down.
1: 1450 WOL, where information is...
0: Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. Our guest today is John Zippert. John, we've been on the air now nine years come next month, October. We were only going to do this show for one month, the month of October, nine years ago. I liked it. NCB, which was our sponsor, liked it. People like you have been on and liked the show and so NCB has been our main financial supporter and cheerleader. They've been really, really great. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, which include the black, brown, native communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. John, before we get back into the conversation about the discrimination that that you witnessed and what is happening today, uh, have you done any work with NCB? Have you, have the Federation?
1: Yes, one of the very first loans went to the Freedom Quilting Bee, 25000 uh, And there are several other groups that have gotten loans, but quite honestly, not that many. We're hoping going forward. Uh, one, one of the issues here is that, you know, you have to be, you have to be ready to take a loan of, from NCB and make something out of it. And because of all the other struggles, many of our co-ops start out underfinanced, under supported, in need of really equity in some cases, uh, or in many cases. So it, it's an issue of, Really putting together the kind of applications that could be successful, and I do feel that, you know, I get—I guess there's the bank that is addressing this. They need to do a better job. They need to work directly with the federation and its members if they want to do the job.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I assume Cornelius is talking to him about that, but I'd like to talk to him about that also. Okay, how to do a better job of that, because that's in there. Um, I'm I'm willing to participate,
1: because I I don't want to come off here as a total critic of everybody. You know, I've been working on this for 50 years. I've been on a number of USDA Minority Farmers Committee. They have an equity commission now. They are trying to find a way to do better. Um, but, you know, they have a long history to overcome and lots of difficulties. And it took 15 years for us to get the Farm Service Agency to consider something they call a micro Mm-hmm it started off at 35,000 now it's 50,000 and you can get 50,000 for operating and 50,000 to purchase land now we fought for 15 and there's less pay. there's not the 23, 23. page there's a <laughs> okay. seven or eight page application and what you buy is if you buy a tractor the tractor becomes The collateral. collateral It took us 15 years of advocacy with USDA over several political administrations to get them to adopt that program. In the first year, they made 10,000 loans, and then they made more loans now, and they consider it one of their better programs because... It is appropriate to the needs of a lot of the people I work with. It's also been helpful to beginning farmers all over the United States who wanted to start at a, at a scale that they could handle and then grow from there. Well, why did it take 15 years for them to adopt a program that even they found out was a good idea. <laughs> and they now put out public relations, press releases, about it, bragging about it.
0: Congratulations, John. And that takes me right into the American Rescue Plan. So fast forwarding from the 60s all the way to today, or at least two years ago, What was that American Rescue Plan and what got in the way from it being implemented? Okay, so there was
1: two sections in the American Rescue Plan, Section 1005 and 1006, that were to address the needs of black, indigenous, and people of color farmers coming out of the coronavirus crisis, which caused you know, various problems, and USDA had a coronavirus food program, 99% of the benefits of which went to white farmers, according to Secretary Vilsack. So Senator Booker, Cory Booker of New Jersey, and Senator Warnock of Georgia got into got sections 105 1005 and 1006 into the American Rescue Plan 1005 said that any black indigenous people of color farm that included Hispanics Asian Amer- up all groups who have been previously discriminated would get the whatever loan they had on December 31st 2020, forgiven. They sent letters in early 21 to the farmers Is your loans will be forgiven. If you want this, respond. And we we are arranging to do this under the American Rescue Plan. White farmers in 13 different federal district courts around the country filed suit against this program, saying it discriminated against them. And they were successful. They got a an injunction against the secretary implementing this program on the basis that it was discriminatory, that only non-white farmers could get this benefit, even though white farmers got all the other COVID benefits And they got a number of federal judges to agree with that. And basically they blocked this program from being implemented.
0: So here's what I've got, John, is that white farmers have gotten the benefits throughout the ages of the Department of Agriculture. Yes. They got the benefits of the Department of Agriculture with during COVID, and he said 99% of the money went to the white farmers. Blacks have been discriminated against, and when the government tries to rectify a portion, but it doesn't help all because this is only forgiving that 8% that you talk about of black farmers that have this these loans. The 92% even couldn't get the loans or didn't know about the loans or did not know how to fill out that 23-page application. So it doesn't help all, it doesn't really compensate for all of the discrimination, only for those that have been able to get the loans and white farmers stopped that. So what, take us forward now, what's happened since then? I,
1: I should mention that 1006 had some money that was to deal with this problem, but wasn't. It wasn't spelled out in the same way. So some of those resources have come, and most of them have been concentrated on BIPOC farmers and farm community. But this lawsuit basically stopped the forgiving of loan program.
0: Okay.
1: Over about 3,100 3, of the 18,000 people who would have been in it, would have gotten their loans forgiven. About half of the people that would have benefited from this were Native American farmers, people farming on Native American reservations who had gotten credit from USDA.
0: And they've been in really bad shape also. But we've got, we only have about three or four more minutes left. So talk about the Inflation Reduction Act.
1: Okay. So basically, The benefits of the loan forgiveness in 1005 was blocked by these lawsuits. So Senators Booker and Warnock decided that they would move the money. There was about $5 billion in the American Rescue Plan for 1005. They would move it to the Inflation Reduction Act. In the Inflation Reduction Act, which really passed recently, they moved that five million in there, and they rescinded Section 1005, which basically meant that the lawsuits were moot.
0: We got to go with that; they're mute. We've got to go. Discrimination has been huge. We're, the government's trying to fix it, and help some black farmers. We've got a lot more work to do, John. Thank you so much for being on today. We could talk about this all. All week. We, folks, please have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. Thank you. 1450 WOL, where information is power.